I mentioned already, but I want to uh, just reiterate again that um, what we're going to talk about a little bit is the same uh, passage of Scripture that the kids are going to be talking about. Now, of course, the, the message itself is going to be slightly different uh, for various reasons. One, we're adults, so we're going to be talking about a few different things. Uh, but mainly, the big difference is that I am me, and uh, Annette and Abigail are Annette and Abigail, and we come at things with different ideas, different viewpoints, and a different style. But I want to encourage you to watch the video uh, for the kids and watch this one together as a family uh, because I believe you're going to get something out of both. And, and even on the weeks when we don't have the same passages of Scripture, uh, do that together as a family as well. Uh, you know, a lot of times we, we separate, you know, kids with children's church and then I, I call Sunday morning with the adults big kids church. Um, but a lot of times they get separated. Uh, but you have the chance right now to attend both services, and then as a family you can talk about things and stuff like that. Uh, so I want to encourage you to do that uh, this morning or whenever you may be uh, watching this. We're going to be in Matthew uh, chapter 28, and I titled this sermon, The Story of Easter. Now, the, the crux of this, and I will read the, the passage of Scripture here in a minute, Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. Um, but the first half of this sermon really isn't going to take place in Matthew chapter 28. It's going to take place in the preceding chapters because I think to truly understand, truly grasp as much as we can, because we do have a finite mind, but as much as we can grasp um, what Christ did for us and the magnitude of this day, of Easter Sunday, we have to have an understanding as well of the previous few days. Uh, last week, of course, was Palm Sunday. And we talked about uh, Palm Sunday, Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which takes place right about a week before his death uh, on the cross. And there's a lot of stuff that happens in that week, which you can look to. Um, of course, we have the Lord's Supper during that week and such, which uh, uh, we got to celebrate and partake in last week, and I hope you did uh, as, as well. You can always go back. All these videos are still on the Facebook page. You can go back and rewatch them. You can always go back and listen to the podcasts uh, as well. Those are posted on our Facebook page. Um, and so... If you're like, man, I missed that one, go back and watch and listen to that one uh, once you're done here. It's all right, even though they, the last Sunday was Palm Sunday and it takes place before Easter Sunday, you'll be all right. You're not going to be out of sorts on this sermon because of that. Um, but So that's where we find Jesus this week, and there's a ton of stuff that's happened throughout that week. But I want to spend some time talking about what happened uh, to Jesus the preceding day, two days before, or not before his death, the day of his death, the days preceding his resurrection. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about that, and then we'll get into Matthew chapter 28. Uh, and if 10 minutes isn't enough time for you to find a Bible or to find Matthew 28, perhaps ask a friend or Google it. Half the time I end up Googling stuff to try to find it anyway. Uh, but so let's talk about this first. So the, the, the note sheet should be out there on our Facebook page uh, if you wanted to do that. But number one, number one is the trials of Jesus. The trials of Jesus. And this is by no way going to be a comprehensive list of what Jesus went through on that, uh, we'll call it Friday. The Jewish calendar is slightly different from ours, but for all intents and purposes, we will call it Friday and Sunday, just for, uh, for this, our, our understanding. 
So on that Friday, really that Thursday night, we see first off that Jesus is betrayed in Luke twenty two forty eight, and it's in it's in the other Gospels as well. But uh, in Luke twenty two forty eight, we read about that Judas Iscariot betrays Jesus. He is one of Jesus's closest friends. We know from, I believe it's John's account of the Last Supper, that Jesus knows who is going to betray him, but he still feeds him the bread and the wine. He still loves him. That's a metaphor not only for, for you and me, but for the world as a whole. He knows that we're going to betray him. He knows we have betrayed him, but he's still willing to give himself. So that's the first thing that's happened to him. He's betrayed and then in Matthew chapter 26, and I want to read you this verse. It's 26 verse 56. We read this. But all this was taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. Now here's the key part. Then all the disciples left him and fled. See, Jesus was also deserted. No, he didn't have a pie thrown in his face. He was left now, of course, we know Peter, right? Everybody talks about Peter, and Peter denies Jesus three times. And yes, that is, there's a ton of stuff. I've talked about that in sermons and other stuff before. But we don't like to talk about that the other ten, and I'm counting ten because Judas has betrayed him. And, of course, we already mentioned Peter. The other ten disciples desert him as well. They don't have this story like Peter does. But we read it right there. Everybody leaves him. He's completely alone. No friends, no family, he's alone. We read later on in Matthew chapter 26 that he's spat upon and beaten. And if you look throughout history, to spit on somebody is one of the highest insults, one of the worst insults you can give to somebody. And he's spat on and beaten. And then in Matthew, 27, Matthew chapter 27, verse 26, we read that he is scourged or whipped. Now, a lot of us have this idea of a whip from like Indiana Jones or other popular movies and stuff like that where it's this long piece of leather with generally a, a hardened leather ball at the end and it leaves welts and it might tear the skin a little bit, but it's more for uh, in, uh, pain and getting somebody to do what you want. But that is not the whip that Jesus was whipped with. Jesus was whipped with a, an invention of pure cruelty whose job it was to destroy the person with whom it, it was being used upon. It was called the cat of nine tails. And it was a whip that, of course, you know, you had your handle. But then it split into nine different pieces of leather. That at the end, some of them were hardened balls of leather. But you also would have chunks of metal or rock or glass, and other such things. And the goal of this whip was not just to inflict pain to get you to do something. It was to completely and utterly destroy the person with whom it was being used on. Jesus' back would have looked more like a meat grinder, had been put through a meat grinder, than an actual human back. Skin, and I know this is, this is disgusting, but it's what happens. Skin and flesh and muscle is tear, torn away from bone, the nerve endings are just left raw and bare. And he was whipped almost 40 times with this thing. His back would have been nothing. He's mocked. We read in verse 27, in Matthew 27, verses 29 through 30 about how he's mocked. And then, of course, in Matthew 27, 33 through 54. Now, I'm in, most of these take place in Matthew. You can read them in the other Gospels as well. But I stuck mainly to Matthew here. He's crucified. 
Now, I know I've gone over this before uh, to other people and stuff like that, but I want to I reiterate what crucifixion was. Crucifixion is widely considered to be the single worst way to die that is created by human hands throughout all of history. The Romans were good at killing people, and they were good at coming up with ways to make that pain, uh, to make that death very painful, and their crowning achievement was crucifixion. It was reserved for the highest of criminals, and it was used to send a message to the rest of the land. This is what we can do to you. You are nothing. You are under the Roman thumb. Get in line. And what happened was, of course, when you're crucified, now Jesus was nailed there, but most people were tied. Jesus was probably also tied to his cross uh, just to make sure he stayed up there. Uh, but he was also nailed there, one in each hand or, or wrist. Uh, if you remember, uh, the word hand back then extends all the way down to about here. So we, we like to think of Jesus having been nailed in the center of the palm, which is probably not where it happened. It probably happened more here in the wrist area on both, uh, both arms. But so he's nailed up there, right, like this. And what happened was, as you were suspended in the air like this, whether you were tied there or nailed there, your chest would compress down and together so you couldn't breathe anymore. You couldn't take a breath. And so to, to uh, alleviate that and take a breath, you would use your shoulder muscles to heft yourself up, take a breath, and drop back down. That's why it took so long for you to die. Now you might say, Pastor, if I was in this situation, I would just accept my fate and die. And to that I say, you're full of yourself. Because the human will to live is one of the strongest things in all of creation. We try to extend our life any way possible. Even if we know we're going to die, we try to extend our life even that one minute. So you're up there and that's why sometimes it would take hours for somebody to die because as long as your muscles held, you could pull yourself up. Eventually though, you would tire so much and you would have muscle failure and you couldn't pull yourself up and take a breath and you would suffocate. You might say, okay, people suffocate all the time. That's not as bad. Here's the problem. You know you're dying, and it's a psychological warfare as much as it is a physical one. And then in Jesus' case, as he's being crucified, remember what we just talked about. His back has been torn to shreds, and all of the, the, the nerve endings and everything are raw. They're bare, and he's on rough-cut hewn lumber. And every time he drags himself up to take a breath, his back is dragged across that wood. The amount of pain he must have endured is mind-boggling. Everybody has it's a pain threshold where you can only take so much before you pass out. I kind of get the feeling that God supernaturally took away Jesus' pain threshold so that he could endure and keep going and keep experiencing more and more pain for you and for me. So that's where we find Jesus on what is, in my opinion, the darkest day in all of history. The worst day in all of history is Friday. Of, that, uh, of, of Easter weekend. Now the other thing I want to talk about before we get into Matthew chapter 28 is number two there on your notes. So number one was the trials of Jesus. Number two, the veil was torn. The veil was torn. And I want to read you this. This is uh, Matthew 27 verse 51. And behold the veil of the temple. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start in verse 50, excuse me. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. So Jesus yells out in a loud voice and dies. And the veil in the temple is torn. Now what was this? In the temple in Jerusalem, in the innermost part, it was called the Holy of Holies. 
before they lost the Ark of the Covenant, this is where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, and there was one person, the high priest of all of Israel, who could enter into the Holy of Holies once a year. One time a year, one man could enter in, and they would offer a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice, to atone for the sins of the nation. Now, this part is uh, a bit hearsay. There's stories that go with this. Um, Whether it's true or not, People don't know, but I'm going to tell you this story, this part of the story anyway, uh, just to give you an idea of what people think about the Holy of Holies. The story goes that the high priest would tie a rope around themselves so that if they entered into the Holy of Holies and were not cleansed properly before they entered in and God struck them dead, they could be pulled out by the other priests because you couldn't go in and get the body. You also couldn't allow the body to stay in there. Now, whether that's true, history doesn't quite know. But either way, we do know that it was the most sacred place in the world. In all of creation, the most sacred place in that moment is the Holy of Holies. Holy means to be set apart. This is the most set apart of the things that are set apart. And there was a veil, a large piece of cloth that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. And what happens is Jesus dies and this veil is torn. And it symbolizes the fact that, one, Christ is our great high priest. We read about that more in Hebrews. He's the high priest that can enter into the Holy of Holies. And he enters in and makes it so that you and I can enter in. The veil being torn symbolizes this fact that no longer do we need this person to mediate for us. Christ is our mediator. And we can go directly to God. Ten minutes ago, five minutes ago, however long it was, I prayed to God. I can do that and enter into his presence because the veil is torn. I don't need a priest. You don't need a priest. You don't need a pastor. I don't need a pastor. We can talk to God because of that moment. Now, here's the thing, right? Christmas is my favorite time of the year. But to be honest with you guys, Christmas is not the most important time of the year for a Christian. It's great. I love it. The birth of Jesus. We sing all these songs. It's great. Oh, I love it. And also... Friday of, the, uh, of Easter weekend is not that important unless Sunday happens. You see, if Jesus dies and stays dead, he hasn't conquered death, and you and I are still going to hell. But then Sunday happens. And let's read Matthew chapter 28. We're going to read verses 1 through 10. And again, I read out of the NASB, but whatever you have with you in front of you, uh, that works. Matthew 28, 28, verses 1 through 10. Now after the Sabbath, as it, had be, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he is risen just as he said. Come see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee. And there they will see me. Let's talk about this. This isn't a fill in the blank on your notes, but number three, Resurrection Sunday. 
Resurrection Sunday. So this takes place in the early morning, right? Now, most of you know me, and if you don't know me, let me tell you, I don't like the morning. It's beautiful. The times when I'm awake to see the sunrise and stuff like that and hear some birds chirping, it's, it's beautiful. I'd much rather be asleep. But it's morning, dawn, it's quiet. And these two women named Mary go to the tomb, perhaps to mourn some more, perhaps just to see the body. You know, we all go to, the, we all have loved ones that have died and we go see their gravesite and stuff like that. And they show up and they find the most incredible scene in all of history. Standing there, sitting on the stone, however he's doing it, is an angel. The angel's not named. I personally think it's Gabriel since he's the messenger. He's the one that started this whole thing when he appears to Mary and Joseph and says, you're going to have a baby. It's fitting that he's the one that ends the whole thing too. We don't know. Not a hill to die on, but I choose to think that it's Gabriel. And his appearance is like lightning. And his clothes are as white as snow. And these two guards that are posted there freak. And they pass out. You know, we see this in, in, in pop culture and movies and stuff like that or whatever. You get so scared and it's a true thing. Your body gets so scared that it literally just shuts off. That's what happens to these two. And Mary and Mary show up. And he's there. And put yourself in their shoes. They walk up and standing there, even if he's not a gigantic person, this being like lightning. Think of lightning, right? It's crackling. It's power. Now, this power is not the angels. It's God's. But there's a palpable feeling of power. When lightning strikes nearby, the hair on your body starts to stand up a little bit. He's like lightning, and he's dressed in the purest white that you've ever seen. And the first words out of his mouth to these women don't be afraid. I love it in scripture. I've said this any time I've talked about angels. One of my favorite things about angels is that every time they show up, they have to tell people, don't be scared. Because even if they choose to look humanoid like us, you'd still be terrified of this being like lightning and dressed in robes as white as snow. I know I would be. He says, listen, don't be afraid. I know why you're here. I know. You're here to see Jesus. Perhaps the most well-known verse in all of Matthew 28 is 28:19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's a great verse. Love it. It's not the most important verse. Because 10 verses earlier, right around there, 13 verses earlier, in verse 6, this angel, whoever it be, says, he's not here. He's risen just as he said he would. He told you it was going to happen, and it did. That verse changes the course of all of human history. He's not here. He got up and left. One of my favorite uh, uh, pictures, memes, we, we young folk call them on Facebook and such, and it comes around every Easter or so, is the stone rolled away, and there's the two guards sitting on the hill, and the and, uh, it shows Jesus walking out, and he says good morning to the two guards. And the one guard looks at the other guard and says, you say anything? And he goes, nope. I, I, I find that so funny, and I love it. But it shows Jesus got, maybe he just got up and left. I'm out of here, y'all. I said I was coming back, and I did. 
And this verse changes the course of all of human history. Before this verse, there's no hope. Hope is an illusion. Hope is something that you're just, oh man, I just, it's so far out of reach. But then Jesus gets up and walks out of the grave just like he said he would. And hope is no longer out of reach. Hope is there to be grasped. It's there to be seen. It's there to be realized. And the angel has some instructions for them, right? Go see the disciples. And as they're going back to see the disciples, Jesus is like, yeah, I'll go. I'll say hi to them. And he shows up and says hi to them, and they worship him. And he goes, listen, now, thank you. Now go do what the, angels t- what the angel told you to do. I'm going to go ahead of him into Galilee. And in other gospels we read, you know, he meets with the, the, the two on the road to Emmaus, and he meets with uh, Peter uh, and John and, and a few others and, and, and such like that. And over the next 40 days, he's going to meet with them and do other kinds of things. But this moment in verse 6, which is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, that first, ha- uh, that first part, he's not here, he is risen, is the whole reason that we can come together, that we can celebrate, that we can do anything Because without it, we have no hope. But with it, we have ultimate hope. So let me ask you this this morning, this afternoon, this evening, whenever you may be watching it, do you have hope? Maybe you're one of the types of people who only comes to church on Christmas and Easter. Maybe you're somebody who's come to church for years and years and years. Maybe you're somewhere in between. But let me ask you, do you have hope? The world right now is pretty hopeless, it seems, right? We're all stuck indoors because of this coronavirus. We're all wondering what's going to happen next. Is the economy going to reopen? What would happen in the fall, in the winter if this thing comes back? What's going to happen? Oh, we don't have any hope for anything. Oh, man, are they going to make a vaccine? Are they going to do this? And then you look across the world and there's still wars going on. There's still famine going on. There's still this and that. Let me ask you, do you have any hope? Because I do. Because my hope is not in humans. My hope isn't in a scientist. My hope's not in a doctor. My hope isn't in the president. My hope isn't in anyone but Jesus Christ, who is not in the grave. He rose again. And I can have confidence that no matter what happens in this world, I can celebrate. Because he lives. He walks with me and he talks with me. And because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Whatever it may bring whether it bring an abrupt end to COVID-19 or whether it brings me contracting COVID-19, I can face tomorrow. Whether it brings famine or war or poverty, I can face tomorrow. Can you? If you can't answer that with a resounding yes, I can't encourage you enough to accept the free gift. I explained a little bit of what Jesus went through for you. We didn't even get into what happens to him during those couple of days when he's dead. What about you? Are you going to accept his free gift? Can you face tomorrow with certainty in an uncertain world? This seems like the title of a sermon. It's not this one, but can you face it? Because I can. And I pray that you can too. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the fact that because Christ lives, I can live today. I can face tomorrow. My fear is gone. It doesn't mean that I don't work. It doesn't mean that I don't do the right thing. It doesn't mean that I don't try and do the things that I'm supposed to do. But it means I don't have to be afraid of what tomorrow brings. I don't have to be afraid of what the next moment brings because he lives. Thank you, Father. 
Thank you for sending your only son. In Christ, uh, Father, God, I beg of you that you would open the hearts of those that don't know Christ. Show them who you are, that they would accept that gift. Father, it's in the precious, glorious, incredible, holy name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen and amen.